Ready? Set? Welcome back to Made in the 80s, podcast about the 80s by people who are made in the 80s. I'm Shalia, and we have... Tim. Camden. And return special guest, who are you? Demetrius. <laughs> you need your full government yeah, name. Yeah, he uses his whole name. <laughs> you want us to edit that out? <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Go ahead and do that, you know. We're going to get real radical on this part, yes, I expect. <laughs> Welcome <Yeah>. back. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yes, we are going to get pretty radical because this week we were talking about Malcolm X. Not an 80s movie, but we don't care. Uh, we make the rules because it's our podcast. And this is what I'll tell you. Um, after George Floyd and when protests were starting and just we're hearing just the news every day about something else happening. But two, there's two movies that I want to watch. One was Malcolm X. The other is Black Panther. <laughs> and like I, I just watched Black Panther whenever I, I was like I need something let's let's go see what T'Challa's up to we'll have to mention lie to me yeah Black um, Panther shows up <laughs> oh yeah that's right um he does remember Tim how I've said there are um a lot of actors in lie to me like in the like one-off episodes uh-huh. like these um and you had asked me if if uh Chadwick Boseman was in it and I had I was talking about a different episode with um Denai Guerrero no yeah and yeah. yeah. the but I, I that so I was like no but actually yes he is he had he was in like the first season like one of the first episodes um yeah anyway but this week we're talking about Malcolm X and mm-hmm. we're going to talk about it a little bit I will put the timestamp in the show notes for folks who want to just jump straight to our discussion of that um, because right now we're gonna go back to the 80s and do some 80s trivia you guys ready I'm ready ready which Beatles musician helped finance the 1981 movie Time Bandits and also wrote the song Dream Away for it? Well, I'm going to say George Harrison because I think there's only two options. <laughs> and no. Tim, you, what did you say? Paul McCartney. It's George Harrison. Uh, what? Uh, um, what show you like about the dance? <laughs> Kenan's very happy about this. What show about a curly-haired superhero in red tights had a theme song titled Believe It or Not? The Greatest American Hero. Wow. I have not heard of that. And uh, later on Seinfeld, George modified the song for his answering machine message. Uh, It's a great theme song if you ever get a chance to listen to it. Greatest American Hero. It's a fantastic little theme song for a show. Cool. Um, this is a movie we haven't done yet, but I'm sure we will at some point. What 1986 movie soundtrack included the songs Dentist, Grow For Me, and Feed Me? Little type of horrors. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. Feed Me gave it away. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, what kids author and creator of Matilda also wrote The Witches, which was released in 1983? Roll Doll. Correct. You guys are on this. On fire. We're going to do, do The Witches, right? Yeah, I'm sure we're going to do The Witches. We have I've never seen The Witches. That, that movie kind of creeps me out when I was a kid. Yeah, it should be in Creepy October. Sure. We, always have, to, we have to have some that are like tame for me in October. I mean, yeah. not, just, not, not, really. not just slasher <laughs> movies. Yeah. Um, okay, final question. What location-based term was used to describe a style of talking that featured words like, no, words such as like, Duh, totally, and grody. Valley Girls? How'd you know that? Wow. We, we all knew that, right? Yeah. Is that an 80s thing? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
it bled right. over into the early 90s but that was a very that was a big thing on like the playground yeah okay all right totally. all right let's <laughs> totally <laughs> <laughs> nice one Tim. for real for real um <laughs> uh, okay that is now that we have our 80s mindset going let's uh speed up and talk a little bit about today um what is going on do we have any news anything anything interesting i don't have any about? no news no news for me um so i do um so first of all legend of Korra is on netflix now mm-hmm. um and this leads into maybe, I don't know, I didn't speak with Shalia whether she was going to do this news topic, but uh, she was listening to a movie podcast, movie slash entertainment podcast as I woke up a couple That's days really funny, ago. That's because it's slash film daily. It is slash film <laughs> daily. Um, apparently, the, the new remake, it was like a CG remake um, that's coming to Netflix of the original uh, Avatar, Last Airbender. The two what, what, creators have left the show and it's not it's not yet yet come out so salia actually listened to the entire story do you have more details on that just that the 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 two guys who left and i don't know who they are i don't remember their names i was just going to look it up um i don't i don't i'm saying guys as in people i don't know if they're men or women or non-binary or um but um they were the ones remember we were talking about this because we were like they they are dedicated to do a um diverse cast and like not i thought if this was live action that we were talking about not cg but um, it might be live action yeah i You're thought right. it was live action because they were like we're don't worry we're gonna do it right this time because the uh last movie that they tried with avatar was awful um mm-hmm. what was just the last airbender is that what they called yeah. the movie yeah because remember avatar was a big thing yeah already yeah so James cameron um yeah so they, I remember being like, okay, well, I guess if they're committed to doing this right, that'll be okay. Like, that's actually something to be excited about because Avatar Last Airbender is amazing. Um, so it's just a little concerning that they left because that means we could end up repeating history and get something not good again, which is, I mean, it's fine, but it's not exciting. I don't know if it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I would appreciate it if they made the same mistake two times in a row. Well, especially because it's such a great, uh, what's the word? Series? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's such good material, right? Like there's, there's so much they can do with it. It's so fun. Um, but yeah, they really messed it up. So. Tim, have you ever watched that whole series? No, never watched it. Oh, that's a big empty spot for you then you really should sit watch that i think it's been very influential over the years oh i'll watch it at some point i watched the movie though the m night Shyamalan movie that made a bunch of money Ooh. watch that that's I had, no re- I had no reference for it so i was like well it's fine speaking of netflix i've uh i've been noticing that <clears throat> netflix is picking up shows that have ended and are over and they're just showing the seasons and the shows are getting so popular that they're rebooting them and continuing them. Yeah. Because That's what they've been doing with imposters, a show that we were watching. Yeah. Smart. Yeah. Smart. Which ones, which ones are you re- uh, referencing Demetrius? Uh, this show named kingdom, it's called kingdom. Yeah. 
and it's about MMA fighters. And, you know, I started watching it because a friend recommended it and it got so much, you know, picked up so much steam that they were like, okay, we'll bring it back. People were like, oh, why is this show over? Right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was enough push at the right time to, uh, you know, get enough momentum to start up again. All right, going quickly back to the news of Avatar since we were talking about it. So it is a live action. It's actually Netflix. Um, the creators are Michael Dante DeMar DiMartino mm -hmm. and Brian Konietzko. Yep. Um, so, and that, and yeah, and that they both left. And he says that it could still be good. <laughs> <laughs> it has potential to still be good, um, even though they left. I was not, I didn't realize how divisive the follow-up um, series Korra was. So that's, it's already on shaky ground with the bad movie, the divisive follow-up. So, I mean, if they're going to try to reestablish re this brand, because like that first series, it won a Peabody award. It was like, they said, they called it the crown jewel of Nickelodeon at the time. Yeah. Um, I can only hope. So sticking with um, Netflix, uh, the news that I have is, I, I think we have talked about this. Have we talked about how Disney slash Fox was making a, uh, a three movie um, set of Fear Street, the Fear Street novels? No. Have we talked about, so um, the author of Goosebumps, what was his name? Arl Stein. Um, I read the Fear Street books. It's like another series. And apparently it was like for older kids and a little like much darker or something. I don't know. Um, but I read them um, a lot when I was a kid. And yeah, they're making a movie, a set of movies based on them. Um, and Disney has, or Slash Fox has sold it. So it's all, I think they're already done. Um, but they, I think this week, sold it to Netflix. And so Netflix is going to release them um, a month apart next summer, and they're going to call it the Summer of Fear. Um, so I think that's interesting news. One, because I'm excited because I, I remember this a set of books. I don't remember what they're like, what happens in them, but I remember like at one point, like some dead person in the walls, um, like a ghost spirit body thing. Anyway, I feel um, like you should not have been reading these as a kid. I know it's probably one of the reasons why I'm screwed up as an adult, um, but. <laughs> like I scare my own self like in the mirror um but yeah so excited about that but also I think it's interesting because you know we were talking last week or recently about Mulan becoming available on Disney plus I think it's Disney plus right um yeah. next month and how the that platform wasn't really set up for like selling additional content in that way and so I think maybe this is a this is kind of a sign of what they might be doing is getting the money by selling it right but netflix is already set up to have these productions and so let's just let's just have that like that business model um yeah run with it and and just buy it from us so yeah i, I, I know think it's smart last year they they did scary stories to tell in the dark they made that into a movie like a pg-13 horror movie and it was fine it kind of worked so this fear street could work. There's yeah. no way that could have been PG-13 if they clo if they went really close to that art style. They must have pulled back a little bit, right? Of course, yeah, for sure. That for initial sure. art style used to almost gave me nightmares. 
but it was good. I mean, they did a really good job of get, of giving really creepy imagery without making it R-rated. Because there's no gore, there's no blood, just a lot of really good jump scares and stuff. They did a really good job with it. It's on, I think it's on Showtime right now. But it's, it's really good. They, they do a good job of incorporating all of the different stories into the movie. Cool. Um, all right. Well, any other news that you guys wanted to discuss? Demetrius, do you have any news for us? Um, I don't. I don't think I have anything specific. Just I'm running. I'm wondering when people are going to run out of content. Mm-hmm. Like, Never. It's, it's a well. I mean, you know, like in terms of producing new things, I've seen um, anything from uh, television shows deciding to deciding to do cartoons. Um, instead of their regular episodes so that they can continue and complete seasons to just postponing production and, you know, movies that probably weren't going to come out. They're saying, okay, well, let's do a trailer and release it early. So there's just a lot of different decisions and then just the movie making experience in general. You know, I don't know when I'm going back to an actual movie theater. So right. Well, uh, I'm having that fear about Dune now because the trailer is supposed to come out this month. And I, it's actually a movie that I really want to see at an IMAX theater. Like, I don't even want to watch it in our, our home theater. Right. Um, so it might get delayed. I don't know yet. Yeah. Um, but that's a good point that uh, cartoons, like, I do think, though, the rest of the world is better, right? Like, they're able to be producing and, and filming. And so yeah. if yeah, the rest- Yeah, people are still filming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, they're still making content. So I think as long as that is the case, the issue is just distribution, right? And like, when will we actually get to see it? And then like Tenet, right? Tenet is like, I don't know when we're ever gonna see it because it sounds pretty clear that they do not want to release it for like home viewing and so. I think they're releasing it internationally. That's yeah. right. That's right. Other countries are going to get to see it. Which yeah. means spoilers, spoilers are going to be out pretty soon. And, you know, the bootleg websites will have it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, um, what have you guys been up to? Anything, anything noteworthy? Been a while since we've seen you. Um. You know, as I was, I was telling Tim earlier, I have a, I have a newborn, so that's been consuming the majority of my time. You know, taking care of my son and, and uh, you know, watching him to, to grow. The whole working from home thing, pros and cons, but it's definitely a, a pro to be able to see, you know, uh, you know, crawling and you know all these new stages happen as they're happening. Nice. He's very sweet. It's nice that we can at least see him over Zoom sometimes. Yes, yes, absolutely. Tim, what about you? What are you up to? I watched Project Power on Netflix the other day. Jamie Foxx, Joseph Gordon-Levitt film about this pill that gives people superpowers for five minutes. And mm-hmm. the thing, you don't know what your superpower is until you take it. And so it's, it's sort of based in New Orleans and this, this power pill is sort of ravaging the streets and Joseph Gordon-Levin is a cop who keeps getting pills to sort of leaven out the playing field with the police. He's a police officer and wants them to have a fighting chance. And Jamie Foxx is trying to hunt down uh, the people who are responsible. So it's this sort of cat-mouse game. But it's it's fun. I, I liked it, but I always thought 
I thought while watching it, this would have been a better series to sort of like flush out the story a little bit more about like, where the stuff came from. You get to see more people's powers. Uh, it would have been a really dope, like limited series kind of thing, like 10 episodes, eight episodes. Do you sometimes get like a bad power? Yes. Okay. Ooh. Cause this is making me think of like, you know, the Morlocks in X-Men. Yeah. It's like not, not all mutants get like a cool power. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes you just have a eyeball growing out of your armpit. Well, my question, <laughs> but it's only for a couple minutes, right? My question is, is the, is, is it a bad thing? Like, why, um, why, why would they try to stop people from being able to have a superpower? I think a lot of bank robberies are less than five minutes. Listen, <laughs> you're, you're you're coming from a place from like a very Shalia centered place where you would try to do some good with your powers. You're yeah. Like, oh, I beat the homeless, I can save people. Yeah, there's people on the other side of that spectrum who are like, how can I get rich and let me get revenge on somebody right now? Like, imagine you were invisible. What would you do? Mm. I think Shalia would go through all of our money, like gambling, hoping to get a mermaid tail. Yeah. I was just like, okay, give me another one. I, my, my, my impression is that you only, you have the same superpower every time, right? Every it's time. Like, yeah. Okay, well, that's what I was going to ask. I was like, oh, you're a sign? Every time you take the pill? Okay. Yeah, I think it's, it's like, like whatever's yeah, innate. Yeah, and so the, the, the root of it is like all stuff animals can do, like certain animals can do, so you're not necessarily going to get the, 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 the coolest. You might get a mermaid tail. I don't need a mermaid tail. You know, but it's it's in the water anyway. It's a, it's a really cool concept. Um, the movie was, was, was solid. I didn't love it. I thought it was fine. They're probably trying to set up a sequel at the end of the movie, which most of these movies do. I watched it on Netflix. It just came out on Friday, so it's streaming on Netflix. Cool. Lovecraft Country, right, is out today. Out today. Excited. Lovecraft Country. Hmm. Lovecraft. It's a new HBO show. Uh, Anything else that you're up to? The Monsters. Uh, No, that's it. Okay. Kendon, what about you? What are you doing? It's an update. Um, I'm now significantly into Sandman, and it's gotten really good. Like it's, I've gotten past, well, it was always been, it's, it's been really good, but the first part is about, you know, um, the Lord of Dreams, Morpheus getting back what he was lost, was um, what was stolen from him while he was imprisoned for 70 years. But once that happens, it kind of has just opened up into a variety of different stories. One of them is about um, a guy who just decides he doesn't want to die he doesn't feel like dying he thinks it's just something people do because everybody else is doing it so dream is the younger brother of death and so death is like hey i'm gonna leave the guy alone so um dream comes back and meets with that guy at the same bar every 100 years and it's just an interesting story like the guy like living through um ups and downs and and he's from britain so just ups and downs in that society um and then the one after that is actually like an African folk tale, um, like legend almost, and dream will appear to people in their own cultural context. Um, and there's actually a tie-in from that in, uh, to the earlier main storyline. So anyways, I really like it. Um, and so I would still, I would highly recommend the audiobook version. Um, I was talking to Josh about it and he said he couldn't get into the art style, which I can kind of see because it's, 
it's got that that 80s look it's how do i say um it's not it doesn't have that gritty slash try to trying to be real look to it yet so i can see why he he didn't get into it um and then the other thing i was doing is uh this game called borderlands 3 uh went on sale went half off so i finally got it i'm playing it with a friend of ours named james um it's a pretty good game that's all uh now for sandman going back to sandman um i learned this you might have said it before and i just kind of missed it but um same writer as good omens right right good omens um because I, I was trying to remember like something more recent that shalia was really familiar with because she's not a fan of Coraline because it was creepy um and then also like i've said before american gods which is an amazing book and a pretty great series as well yeah but i didn't know that good omens was related to that because i really liked that show that it's was very good. british british um okay well so what i've been up to is two things one, not so good. Uh, Kendon went to go hang out with friends the other night. And so I went onto Netflix and there's a, like a rom-com on there, I guess, called The Lost Husband. Um, so I thought that was appropriate. So I watched that. Um, it's not good. It's Josh Demal, which I thought would be, I mean, everything that he's in is awesome. Um, but I, if, I, if I were to do it again, um, I would not watch that. I would go back to, um, what's the one where she's on the run from her DV cop boyfriend? safe harbor safe haven safe yeah haven. i would just watch safe haven there's no reason you got to watch this other one um and the woman in it is i forget her first name like leslie or lynn or laura or something bib um she's pretty uh she's been in a lot anyway not not the best i wouldn't necessarily recommend it but whatever um and then the other thing that i'm watching is uh season volume three Whatever the most recent volume is of Dear White People, I, we never watched it. And so I'm watching it now. And I am glad we waited or I, I waited because I missed it. Like, it's nice to have right now back when, like, I don't know, people were still going to school and it seemed realistic. Um, and I, I love the characters in it. And I really enjoy, um, yeah, I, I enjoyed that show. And so... I'm watching it now. I'm in episode 10, I think. Um, but yeah, so if you haven't watched it, I recommend it because it's fun. I finally it's had fun. one of those experiences while I was watching it where I was like, oh, that's inappropriate. And I was like, oh, no, because the guy like leans in a little too close. And, <laughs> and I was like, oh, you need to you need to lean back. Like, like you're going to get her Corona. And I was like, oh, wait, no, like this was before. before well, it was funny because he said that and it's a, a, a kind of a professor. Um, so I thought he meant like the sexual, like uh, almost sexual harassment e, like he's leaning in too close to this female student, and then yeah, and then it turns out that's not what he's noting. He's like, nope, COVID. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't lean in in that sort of way. He just kind of leans in to be like, you know, I'm going to tell you the truth or, or something like that, yeah. and it's just like, oh wait, dude, bubble, bubble. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh man, when when people are more in person, are they going to start doing the the cross? You know. <laughs> yeah the cross of warning <laughs> warding i mean ah yeah. yeah i don't know how that's gonna be you're just gonna be like stepping back like yeah you're getting close anyway that's what i've been up to you guys ready to talk about malcolm x yes let's do it what's your name malcolm little no that's the name of the slave masters who own your family you don't even know who you are you're not an american we didn't land on plymouth rock 
Plymouth Rock landed on us. You're saying you're anti-white. No, you're saying I'm anti-white. Okay, Malcolm X, directed by the great Spike Lee, mm -hmm. starring Denzel Washington. What year did this come out? 92. Tim, can you tell us uh, who else made this movie and was in it? I'm on my phone. I was. I would love to. to oh man. Okay. Somebody I tell will us take more over about the, this movie. The duties. <laughs> I got. You mean you don't have it all memorized? No, I don't. Well, so Giancarlo Esposito shows up. Um, Angela Bassett's in it. Spike Lee obviously is in it. Uh, Delroy Lindo's in it. Um, who else am I missing? You ready? A Bassett. Albert yeah. Hall, Al Freeman Jr., and like you said, Del uh, Delroy Lindo. Mm -hmm. Um. Screenplay by Arnold Pearl and Spike Lee. Ooh. Okay. 40 Acres and a Mule production. Yeah. It looks How like it, it was do? profitable enough. Off of a budget of $35 million, it made 56 In the box office? In the box office. Yeah. So it's still, because I'm sure it's still making money, right? Oh, it has to. Like, I saw it on, on home video for sure. This yeah. movie is not going to age. Do, do you guys agree? Yeah, there's that great Spike Lee story he tells. I think it's on Inside the Actor Studio about running out of money on the film and Warner Brothers not wanting to give him any more money to make this film and then calling Matthew Bill Johnson. Cosby? Bill Cosby, Michael Jordan. He's called all these people who gave him money to help finish this film. He's very emotional talking about it. Um, but you can see why he needed the money, right? It's three and a half hours long. It spans different decades. The costuming is great. All of it is fantastic. Uh, so it cost them more. So it's it's a good story. Right. Well, and unlike Do the Right Thing, right, it's it doesn't just take place on a block. There are a lot of people in this. Um, it's, yeah, it's much more expansive in terms of yeah, production and what you would need. There might be an obvious answer, but can you guys think of a more important movie, in your opinion, in black cinema? Yeah. What do you think in Shaft? I was like, is Demetrius going to say Last Dragon? <laughs> well, I mean, it's, I think it's really difficult to, to just frame it into one, you know? Um, it seems to be so many different styles and formats, right? There are stories that you need to tell, and then there's, you know, like this, you know, like a documentary type of movie that has to be told as well. So it'd be hard for me to narrow it down to just one, but this is a, a really big one. Well, this is two movies in one almost. And I'm surprised, like I was surprised at the time when I saw it um, and a couple years after, but now even at, at my age, I'm really surprised that there's, to my opinion, no equivalent Martin Luther King movie. But I think that's why this one is so important because people glorify Martin Luther King already, right? Like in everyday life, not just near his birthday, but everyday life, he's the, he is glorified. He's like put out there as like the savior of, we live of in, us, right? in king county <laughs> yeah that's right king county washington right um re renamed after him um but with malcolm x he is almost vilified i feel like in pop culture like you when you hear about him you don't hear like this he, he, people don't reference him in the same way necessarily unless they actually know like more i think it's about gotten better about. and i think this movie helps with that like i think this movie was necessary to tell his story because I'm guessing in 92, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be hearing about him in that way. I was, I was having a discussion one time about like stories of black trauma and slavery movies and films and, and why some of these films are so hard to make sometimes. And it's, 
I think Martin Luther King is a very feel-good story, even though he gets assassinated. It's a feel-good story because you can end with the March on Washington, you can end with his assassination and say he was bringing everyone together. And I think the Malcolm X story isn't really a feel-good story. He's the dude who comes from crime, finds Islam, preaches a bunch of stuff that people didn't agree with. But by the time he has sort of this turn in, in, in sort of what his beliefs, he's gone. And there's no real legacy to him other than the Nation of Islam who cling on to Malcolm X as one of their own, despite how his life ended. So it's not a feel-good story. So that's a hard story to tell. Like, how do you pitch that? Because at least as the movie tells it, it looks like he is, he's ended by, by his former organization, right? Yeah. Right. So it, it's not like you have a, the, the sort of villain that makes the MLK the sort of martyr that's easier right. to take, right? It's not like the feds or the CIA or some white supremacist. It's the nation. Well, and his most vocal uh, points were when he was still with the nation, right? So his, yeah. his speeches about white devils and we don't, we don't want your help and... The famous uh, chicken Bruce line, all of that. Yeah, that's, that's what you know. And so you don't, I mean, because he didn't really have a chance to get loud on his platform of, you know, basically expanding and growing. Um, I to Mecca, he had this. So when I was in seventh grade, well, when I was in ninth grade, before I went to Garfield, I, I spent a semester in Ballard High School. And I had a class that was specifically just like, you just got to read and write. That was the class. It was some weird class they put for us kids who came in real late in the school year, right? So just had to read and write. So I read the autobiography of Malcolm X, but not the not the popular one. It was like another one I read. That one was checked out. So I read another one. And I remember reading all about Malcolm X and it, it jived with what my parents had told me. It jived with what my dad had told me. And I remember reading about sort of his the change of his views, but then going to class learning about Malcolm X and not hearing any of that. Mm-hmm. It's, like yes. a, a, it's like a paragraph. <laughs> and I was like, hold on, man, a paragraph? Well, I, it was influential. I remember watching this movie, and so I don't know when, it, when I watched it, so it was probably 92 or 93. Yeah. And then it was like MLK Day, and then me asking my teacher, why, why don't we have a Malcolm X day <laughs> and I don't remember it being a very satisfying answer I don't remember what what she said but um I don't know what you would say to the only black kid in the whole grade yeah. <laughs> like, but oh. coming up and asking that question like no, yeah, I, this... I, oh I'm sorry go ahead no go ahead no I was going to say that 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 relationship with um the repetition of what you learn in school and how there's the same you know, like a cookie cutter model of people that we're going to talk about in terms of, you know, Black and African-American history. And then, you know, I remember having a discussion with my wife about um, how the curriculum at school and what my parents gave me were two separate things. Mm -hmm. One of those alone would not have done the job. And so my experience with, you know, Malcolm X, the movie and like understanding how things went were through the parents of my eyes, my, my parents' eyes actually seeing it and then helping to walk me through and explain it. Whereas the school had this, you know, we're gonna stay in this box, we're gonna tell these stories, and outside of that, we're just gonna, we're gonna breeze on past that. Yeah, it's a fact, same. Um, 
I think so, that's true for many of us. And I think it, what's really interesting is when you take what you've learned at home and bring it to school and they're, yeah, they don't know what to do with it. <laughs> yeah, like, oh. yeah. And what's interesting to me, right? Because I, this would be a good analogy for me at the time, right? Is um, I think Stan Lee has said that the creation of, when he created the X-Men, you know, Magneto was supposed to represent the, the Malcolm X mm-hmm. <laughs> while um, Professor Xavier would be Martin Luther King. And I guess even more recently, Black Panther, right was um killmonger was more of the malcolm x militant type um who you know i I think we should point out is defeated ultimately by by the mlk um philosophy i guess which i think is a little questionable um especially the way things are now because you know we had the colin kaepernick do it the the peaceful protest way and that was vilified and, and crushed and so um, I do think that there is an argument that you needed a, a, you needed a Malcolm X at least to get the sort of change that we did because they were or like, I don't, I don't think it's still well understood that Martin Luther King was widely reviled, was not popular. Like people, the way that it's taught and like I thought, um, even when I was a kid, it was like, oh, like this, this people were understanding this great man and this or that. But no, like the, if you look at the polling, he was extremely unpopular. Right. But he had some people further to or further on the quote unquote extreme end to make him seem more reasonable because he was speaking from the language of Christianity and turned the other cheek and he was still being looked at as a radical. And then the other idea is that he was murdered because he was trying to to unify poor people as opposed to just people of color. Mm -hmm. You're saying to him? Yeah, he was an agitator to people. They didn't love him like that. They killed him. It's it's all this revisionist history now that he's that he's gone and we've we've made some progress that people love him. But like I think the point you're making is very true, which is like Malcolm was an important piece because he was the figure you point out and say, it's either this or that. So which one are we going? Are we going for the like chickens come home to roost and let's have our guns and let's all be prepared and let's the way he talked to white people, the way like all of that. They didn't want to deal with that. Then they didn't want a bunch of Negroes believing in that rhetoric yeah and i mean not not allowing it to let allowing that to to breathe i think yeah. gives you the black panthers then right yeah the next step along along that sort of pathway um, Tim, uh, i think we should get into the movie but i am also curious about you have some kind of perspective of what was happening in the time from folks who were in new york do you want to talk about that now or do you want to wait about it now before we get to the end of the movie i mean because yeah. In, but like my dad was living in New York at the time and this whole conversation started with my dad around um what was that Denzel movie where he well we played Frank Lucas what was that movie called American Gangster so American comes out and they're talking about how much money Frank Lucas was making so I called my dad I was like man you were in New York then like how was he able to make so much money as a drug dealer in that time and he was like well you had a bunch of people going out to Vietnam War and coming back and they were drug addicted and they just had money to spend. And then, so he started, so he goes into this whole conversation about being in New York at the time. One thing he mentioned was, you would see these guys openly selling heroin and selling dope on the streets. Like it was hard to hide. So, but the cops were so busy trying to mess up with Malcolm speaking on the streets or the, the Nation of Islam, that that's where their energy was focused in, in the city at the time. And they didn't care. I mean, they obviously getting paid off. They didn't care these people were buying drugs. They cared about this radical movement that was happening. 
Well, it's not too much of a conspiracy theory, but I think it's known that drug dealers like that are often, if not supported, like tacitly accepted by, you know, law enforcement because at least they know who, like, like they know that there's this one source that they can lean on or get um, kickbacks from or this and that, as opposed to um, somebody they don't control or several people they don't control. And that was part of my dad's speak. But the one thing, so his friend was a bodyguard for Malcolm X and he was assassinated. So my dad's friend hid in his apartment for three weeks after the assassination because he wasn't, you know, people, I mean, we're thinking about the 60s where people are getting killed in public. Major figures getting murdered in daylight. And so this nobody was like, they could kill me too. So he hid in my dad's apartment for three weeks because he was afraid for his life. Like a real, honest to God, fear that I might get shot in the streets because everyone knew how powerful the nation was. That was his fear. And my dad didn't get any of the conspiracies. He was just like, my friend, who was a bodyguard, feared for his life. And it, it felt very real to him. So he, he hud out of my apartment for three weeks and then he left. Quick, quick question on that. Um, was he at the assassination? I, know, I should ask my dad that. I don't know. It's a very good question. Wow. It's a very close connection. Yeah. Yeah. My dad said, do shut up his apartment. Like, I need to stay here. And was like, shook. I was like, well, oh, really? <laughs> well, you can see they, they, they didn't even have regard for the safety of the children. No. Not at all. No. And I wanted to, I, I'd like to bring up things that I noticed. So what, every like time I watch this movie, I feel like I watch it maybe at least once a decade, like different phases of my life, right? Um, yeah. And so I started to notice, you know, he does some really smart things with parallels or, or almost like rhyming um, so you've got, I didn't, under, I didn't understand when I was younger, the importance of his father was preaching Marcus Garvey style. Um, and he gets killed basically for riling up the quote unquote, the good blacks, because um, it was, I think, returned to Africa sort of stuff. Um, and he ends up, you know, going down a similar pathway to his father with his kind of radical preaching sort of um, thing. And so I think, and knowing that he, he died at 39, that means a lot more to me now at 37, you know, and the whole trying to protect his family while, while firebombs are being thrown through your window, just like what they show happening when he was a child. Um, I think this is a really clever filmmaking. Um, I'm wondering, you know, sometimes it's embellished, like did exactly these things happen or not? Um, I hope that they... I mean, it's a weird way to say it. I, I hope that they did. I hope that it wasn't too fictionalized to make that perfect of a parallel. No, they did have him. So, um, his dad was killed on a railway. They said that he committed suicide. He was like in, a, in like Lansing, Michigan. His dad was killed. Right in clan country, for something a lot of people don't necessarily think of, it's like Midwest and North. I mean, they were founded in Indiana, if mm -hmm. I recall. Um, so this wasn't just, this wasn't just the deep South where, where you would have to worry about these things. And was it not Oklahoma that that happened? Was he not yeah. in Oklahoma at the time? Michigan. I was killed in Michigan. Okay. So we are talking about it cause we know this so well. Um, and I, my guess is our friends do too, but just in case they don't, Demetrius, as our guest, can you tell us what this movie is about? Um, this movie is about the life of Malcolm X, and it sort of starts 
and it, it bounces around early childhood, you know, um, midlife, later in life, his interactions with family, and just sort of the development of, you know, um, his protests, being an activist, and just, I guess, behind the scenes, right? You know, you hear a lot of stories, especially from, you know, family and, you know, people that were around during that time. And then you're like, okay, well, what can I link to something? And this movie is a good timeline of how to link events, activities, and, you know, just sort of um, what was going on at the time and maybe get a little insight. Maybe it's not all factual, but I, I thought it was a great representation of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, what's interesting, you guys have said it a couple of times, it's like, it's basically two movies. I And it's only the last half that seems like for me that I care about and that I'm interested in. And so the mm-hmm. first part feels like a, kind of eating my vegetables a little bit, but it is really important, right? Because it shows, it shows his early life, his dad. Um, it shows... Um, kind of, I mean, it's his foundation. Like this is, this is how he became who he is and how he ended up in prison. Um, so in that early, like his young adult um, uh, segment um, of this movie, is there anything that you guys want to talk about what he was getting into? Um, I mean, it's very character development. Uh, well, it's, it's, it's very necessary for it, for you to frame the transformation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's right. What I'm it, it, that's the point of it. It frames the transformation. And then shows a lot of, uh, several characters who, who show up later, right, um, after his transformation. I don't feel like it's eating my vegetables. I really love both sides of this movie. Um, so I, I think it's really critical uh, to the overall uh, feeling of the movie, and particularly the way it crescendos towards the end where uh, one of the funniest scenes, uh, d- despite its tragedy, right? The, the judge listing off the sentence. <laughs> like, it's just like year after years after years. Um, so I, I really like several aspects of that. Um, West Indian Archie, I think is an amazing character, um, played amazingly by Del- uh, Delroy Lindo. Um, and, all of the flashbacks. In fact, there's one particular scene that's always been stuck in my mind uh, ever since I was you know, high school age, because um, I've mentioned before, one of my very favorite movies is, is Gattaca. And it's this movie where um, there's an underclass of people who are, no, who are not genetically engineered, right? Um, everybody else is genetically engineered. So you basically have menial jobs if you were born naturally. And the, char- the main character is extremely intelligent is it, uh, wants to be an astronaut and all of this. And somebody sits him down basically and says, I, to tell you the truth, the only way you're going to see the inside of a, of a uh, spaceship is if you're cleaning it. And the, the framing and the whole vibe of that scene has always tied to me with the scene with the white teacher, who's basically like, you know, a lawyer is not a realistic goal for a Negro child. Um, you could, you want to work with your hands. Your father was a, a carpenter, wasn't he? And, and like knowing nothing about his family, like that, that his uh, father was likely educated and was a, was a preacher and had these certain views, just assuming that all you can rise to is this. Um, so, so much of that early part of the, of the movie really sticks with me. There's a great, what, that scene reminded me of this great documentary that's out right now called A Kid from Coney Island about Stefan Marbury. 
towards the end of the documentary, he's in a barbershop talking to this little black kid, just having a conversation with him. And he was like, you know you can be president. And the kid just kind of sits there quietly. He says, no one told you that, did they? And he said, no. And Stefan says, nobody told me either. And it's this moment of like, what are we putting in these? We're not even telling these kids what they can be and what they can't be. And it's just really emotional moment where he very calmly is like, no one told me that either. But I'm telling you, these are things that you can do. Is, which reminded me of that conversation. But to give, to give more context to people listening, the beginning was the first hour or so of the film is just, he's Detroit Red, he's robbing people, he's working for a West Indian guy, he's using drugs, sleeping with white women, he's doing all the depravity that, that he's later on when he becomes part of the nation, um, steps away from. But he's dressed once, up in zoot suits. Yeah, some of those suits was kind of fly. Yeah. But the one scene that I think speaks to me is when the guy calls him country at the bar and he and says something about his mom and he hits him over the head with that bottle. You see this rage in him. You're like, oh, he's got this thing in him. Like, he's been quiet the whole movie, hasn't said much, and he just goes off on this guy. Um, so when later on when he's getting in these situations and he's he's Malcolm X and he's very calm, you're like, oh, there's a transition there where he's not He's not tapping into that rage anymore. He's attacking his problems from a different angle now. He's, he's using his wits. Like when he challenges the preacher at the, in, in prison about what Jesus looks like. Like that whole conversation could have been combative, but it's not combative. He's just asking very direct questions and asking for very real answers. Um, when you start to see that change in, in his behavior. So one thing I was going to say is that what I pre one thing I really appreciate about this movie is that I feel like most movies, even biopics of this type, will show the the evolution of a character from from one mindset to a later mindset, and this one allows him more growth than even that. He goes like at least through two transformations, maybe even three. You know, he goes from, you know, what, what did you say, Detroit Red? Mm -hmm. He goes he goes into prison he with all of the defiance that he has there then he has the tra the transition which becomes then the zeal of the converted but while he's still within the movement he matures he starts to see things like he he was the mouthpiece of um elijah, elijah muhammad right and then realizes that that's no longer the case or no longer the appropriate way to think. So he's already transitioning out of that before he leaves the nation. Then he leaves the nation, tries to start his own thing and then goes to Mecca and has further transformation. And I, and I was wanted to say like, this is a, an amazing tour de force uh, by uh, uh, Denzel, Denzel Washington. Like I can't Im imagine who else would have pulled all of these off because he has to play three to four different characters right um and he does it amazingly well so yeah i mean and and, and to tim's point the uh you know the stefan marbury story um you know i find that i'm into uh, documentaries and you know true stories of life and docupics and biopics and things like that um a lot more just simply because you know even in this movie the character development and layers um it brings out something that's more realistic. Usually you see someone and they're put on a pedestal, mm -hmm. you know, the statue, and you have these key points that they hit, right? But the things that make them human and the things that make them real and the things that happen in real life, like to every person, um, 
it allows you to understand that, you know, um, aspiring to something, um, always betting on yourself. Like you continue to see this, even when he's doing bad things versus good things, he's always betting on himself, right? That's not something that's taught in school. It's like, oh, well, this is kind of where you fit in. This is what you should do. But the fact that you can come from his background and achieve, you know, the highs and the lows that he did is just, you know, a positive affirmation of this is what any person is capable of. And that's, you know, something that growing up my parents used as a teaching tool, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the beginning. Mm -hmm. um, do you guys want to talk about his time in prison? Because that's yeah. like an interlude. It is. Do anything you guys want to say? I mean, you've, you've referenced it a little bit of like, he's in like a religion class uh, yeah. and, and at like pushing back on, on those, um, what, what's, what's pushed on us. Um, and then this guy, you know, picks him somehow and says like, and just decides he's, he wants to bring him in um yeah. get him to wash all that shit out of his hair and uh i think he sees the fire and the intelligence in him he right off the bat see the smartest cat in here and yet why don't you use it see he you know he's looking for new members and he's he's preaching to him what he needs to hear at the time right how to not how to be free in your mind so when you're out of prison you can still be free I was so I'm, I'm so disappointed that that's the guy who then turns on him. I mean, I guess that's a classic thing. And it may have been more complicated in real life who was turning on him, this or that. But it's just so sad to see that things have to tear, it, tear itself down from the inside. Um, the fear of success, somebody outpacing your success. I think it's the outpacing success. I also think it's control, right? Like... I, I brought you on to do a task and now I, you're going beyond what I can, I can control. And it's, so he's almost a threat to him and to and the if others. I believe, if I believe all of the teachings of Elijah Muhammad and then Elijah Muhammad tells me this guy, despite that I brought him in, how I feel about him. If he's telling me that this stuff is true about this man, I'm more apt to believe that than what I know. If I'm just following blindly with whatever Elijah Muhammad is saying. Yeah. Except it seems like he's the one, I'm trying to remember, what is his name? The guy who brings him in, Baines? Yeah, Baines. He seems like he's the one whispering in Elijah Muhammad's ear, not the other way around. I didn't, yeah, that's that's the impression I got too, from the movie at least. I also didn't um, get the impression that Elijah Muhammad was really following that or like buying into it. It was until he got pretty sick and like, lost his own power a little bit that the others stepped in. So that, I mean, I don't know how accurate like, it is. Like but. Power grab because they knew like Muhammad wasn't going to be around for long. Mm -hmm. And we can knock and cat running things. I, I mean, it's like, it's what happens when you're expecting the king to die, right? All of the advisors, all of the heir apparents start to yeah. have to come at each other's throats. And again, they can't control him. Like, right. And he also is now threatening to kind of tear down a major piece of his legacy by going through and looking for the different ch uh, children that Elijah Muhammad has, has sired out of wedlock on right. all of these young women. 
which is such a crazy thing. Not that the nation is a cult, but I, I watched this thing about cults and stuff. And there was like a common thread. They're like these leaders, these men either had multiple wives or they slept with underage women. Like that was like a thread through this. It was like eight different cults. And then that was like a constant. You know, so it's our him just having kids with multiple women seems. A cult is a word that gets used more to, to take something down, but like, this, it, it is a cult, right? It doesn't mean it's illegitimate, this, that, or whatever, but it is a cult. It was, you know, I think founded by him, right? I don't know. Well, in any one of these sort of organizations, the person at the top, if you take it out of just a cult or, or religious, this is something that happens over and over when like religions are founded or other sort of organizations. Um, the person at the top starts to want to, to draw all of the benefits upwards to themselves. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like an unfortunate reality with, um, you know, I think people think in a very simple pattern, which is, this is either good, or this is either bad. But the reality is, is that everything that's created that's good, has a, you know, a negative connotation that is associated with it, or something bad is happening on the other side. And so it's like, is this good, good enough? to downplay the bad things that are coming with it or like what that balance is. Yeah, and that's what Malcolm says when he's, when he, one of my favorite scene when he's talking to his wife about when she asked him about what she's heard and she says, hey, did you, have, you, have you talked to him? And he has this sort of like struggle. He's trying to explain it to like <laughs> convince himself. It's like, hey, one man's bad deed doesn't outweigh all the good that they've done. And he's trying to explain it, but he knows it's, he knows it's full of shit. He knows it's not it. Well, he, he, want, he doesn't want his, to believe his father has fallen, yeah. right? Because yeah. this is his father figure. So, um, Kendon, the, I'm, I'm like significantly reacting here because one of the biggest fights that Kendon and I have ever been in <laughs> is, that, is this topic. Um, our our, our um, figure that we were talking about was MLK. And like, I mean, I think ultimately we say good people can make bad decisions. And so for me, it was... He did all of this stuff, but he also what did he what did he do for women when he was cheating on his wife? Um, and like for for all of us to like go forward and be like, I guess it's okay if my husband cheats on me because he's yeah. doing all of these other great things. So I guess I should just take it. Um, you know, like that's the conversation that we have of like, does the good outweigh the bad? Does it does it factor in at all? Does the bad take away from any of the good is it's like the 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 question underlying question just being like is mlk a good man um or good and i think this is very it's really interesting because it's, like, it's a simple math problem for me yeah because the cheating on your wife thing is really just contributing to the regular status quo um while his other work was improving life for at least women of color so that math ends up in the positive easily for me one man cheating on his wife is something that's been happening forever and is not necessarily an oppressive thing, right? There's other forms of oppression on women. Um, infidelity is not, to me, one of them. So it was obvious to me, and we really did get into it. I was like, how could you possibly be saying this about him? Like, I think I thought she was just, you know, trying to be provocative, basically. And I was just like, the, the math doesn't add up to what you're saying. Yeah, I will say, like, I didn't have an opinion on it aside from the question, asking the question and then, like, challenging some of the answers that he gave. Because um, I'm like, my question is, 
that's my question. But I think. Do you look at Elijah Muhammad having different kids differently, having kids with women differently than MLK cheating? Well, I don't know who, I don't know who MLK was cheating with. That would be um, something that I I would want to look into because clearly um, I would say that Elijah Muhammad is, is, has this power dynamic that, that he is abusing for multiple women, right? If MLK was sleeping with somebody else, roughly of his stat status or or somebody he's traveling with all the time, I think Mm -hmm. it's different. Um, While it seems like Elijah Muhammad is actually contributing to what Shalia is talking about, right? That's more to me, misogyny or repression of women to be using them in that way, as opposed to your more general type of infidelity. And I had the exact opposite reaction. Like, unless those women are underage, Mm -hmm. I, I have a lot less, um, judgment on Elijah Muhammad than I do on MLK for cheating. I have the exact opposite (laughs) reaction there. Go ahead. It's well, I I think we've created a false truth, right? That people that do great things are not capable of being human and doing bad things. And the reality is I don't really know that there's a person that hasn't done something that somebody's going to either raise their eyebrow to or have an issue with and being able to accept all of those. I think immediately we start doing categories, but Every great person you can think of has at least one questionable thing, spoken or unspoken, that is going on. And we're just creating this narrative for people that are untouchable at a certain status or level. But there's no good without the bad when it comes to, you know, what people are actually involved in. And you can see it's a useful tool for the establishment or, you know, um, reactionary elements because we see it come up every time. A, an unarmed black person is killed, right? It's like, okay, let's, let's, well, they were no angel because we're going to list off this, 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 this. And we don't get into the point where I, it's the CIA, I believe, maybe the FBI, um, part of like COINTEL Pro, who are basically surveilling him. And they make that funny joke where it's like compared to, 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 <laughs> to monitoring uh, Dr. King, you know, this guy is a, what do you say? They say like a saint or something. Saint. Yeah. Yeah. Because apparently those were some steamy tapes um, listening to MLK all the time. But why are they doing this? Exactly so that you can get some of this dirt so you can undermine or you can, you know, they're sending uh, messages to Dr. King like, we're going to tell everybody this unless you kill yourself. Right. And what I found really interesting, there's a podcaster that I really like um, a couple of years ago was saying in order to like, one thing that they could easily do to undermine a leader like this nowadays is to just put some kiddie porn on their computer. And that would immediately discredit them at least with enough people that, that you could, you could really, you know, suppress any leader, you know, and it wouldn't necessarily have to be kiddie porn, but that's a really like, there's a few things you could just put on somebody's computer, especially if it's sexual and, or in, in, um, in nature. And then people will be like, well, this person can't be that great because they have a flaw. And um... I think you're right. Like, I think you guys are all absolutely right. And that's one of the dangers of like, we've talked about this cancel culture, right? And um, there are some, some assholes where I'm just like, screw you. I don't want to have anything to do with you. I'd go away. But 
um, I mean, part of being, like you're saying, Demetrius, part of being human is those mistakes and honestly, or those bad choices. And like, that's, that all adds, and this is important for this story too, right? Like when we see his younger years, they all add to the person that you become. And none of us are perfect. Like the human condition is to learn and grow and figure it out. Like we, we've talked about this, right? Cause Demetrius, you have a little kid or baby <laughs> and like how now you're seeing like what your parents were going through and like, you, you don't have it all figured out. You're the dad now. You don't have it all figured out. You're just, you know, doing what you can as it goes. And like, yeah, none of us, none, none of us are perfect. And this idea that our leaders have to be in order to, in order for what they're saying to mean something is probably a little, like, it's definitely flawed and it might be a little dangerous because, um, there are probably some important things that we need to be, be hearing and learning and considering. And if you are successful in just like wiping all of that away by pointing one or two or three or five bad acts, then that's problematic. And I think what's really, I think an important point also is that as Americans, we're bathed in a Christian kind of uh, mindset, even, you know, despite whether you are a Christian or not. And the idea that there was a perfect leader to a perfect um, movement back, you know, 2000 years ago. But what a lot of people don't really think about, or maybe not aware of, is that when Rome, when the Roman um, emperor, uh, Constantine, went ahead and, and converted to Christianity, they had this whole conference where they were like, oh, this is about to be a state religion. So we have to look at all of the different writings and choose which ones are going to go into the official Bible and which ones are not, right? There's the Council of Nicaea, I believe. Um, and there were a bunch of gospels that were thrown out, were not allowed in. And I believe that, you know, um, Tim, you might know more about this, but I think there's a huge gap um, in Jesus's life, like going from like a young person all the way up to 33, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. That you don't know what happened in there. And so a lot of these, I think they're called Gnostic uh, um, gospels, might be filling in some of that and it might be showing that he was more human. Maybe he made some of these mistakes, maybe this or that. But you, if, you, if you want to say this person was a perfect leader that you can emulate, and then you can compare every leader who comes after, like, oh, they don't measure up, like, like cutting all that out um, so you don't have that evidence of a more human side, I think is really critical. And then, you know, then 2,000 years later, it's, you can then compare somebody like MLK, who's, who's following all of these teachings you know turn the other cheek this or that it was like well yeah but jesus never cheated on his wife so clearly you're not that great um like yeah but we don't know what he was doing in his 20s yeah we don't know what he was doing in his 20s the, 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 the time where a lot of us make some of our most significant exactly. mistakes well like don't judge me based on my my 20s only mm -hmm. um but also these guys are young like i don't remember the age of mlk but like malcolm was our age when he was killed which means he was younger than us when he was out there doing all of this. Like, that is also insane to me that these guys were so young doing this. It's amazing. Okay, so we got a little off, to off topic for the plot. Um, anything else about the prison pieces? Just his, that, I mean, we get I mean, his, gets, his cocoon, right? Like, he, well, he, literally, mm -hmm. I think, because they throw him in the hole, mm -hmm. right? And that might be, is almost a literal example of what you're talking about with the cocoon. Because mm -hmm. when he comes out, I think he becomes more even more receptive to to what Baines is saying, right? Mm 
um, they don't actually break him, right? Um, so they, yeah, they, he never accepts that he's just a number, which is, I think, a powerful statement. So he he gets released and he meets uh, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, and it's mm-hmm. interesting the way this movie shows it, where like he he is learning by mimicking. Like he is, like they show him literally taking the words that were just told to him and repeating them. Um, And I think that's like a really effective way to learn things. I mean, like as a young lawyer, that's what I was doing. Like I was watching um, some of Tim and I's old coworkers. I was watching them in court and then writing down what they were saying and then repeating the exact same thing until I, until I could create my own words and, and do it myself. And so that was really cool to see him learning, learning it by, by emulating and repeating what is being said. And then it's kind of cool the way the movie shows him get comfortable and start to be able to say it in his own words, which I liked. Do you guys want to talk about any of the content of what he is saying? Um, You know, this like, you know, this is our movement um you know white people that there's that scene at i think it's a school where this like white woman comes up and is like i want to help and he's like get up get out of the way <laughs> like that's that's all oh, you can what, what, what she says is i'm a good white person good you know person. is there anything what can i do to, to help you and he just says nothing and mm-hmm. starts and starts walking away um so yeah i mean do we do you guys want to talk about that piece at all i mean he he rescinds that later mm-hmm. right um yeah. but he's i can see head help he says he says that they can't join his movement but they can help like they can't join him whatever in the church he has that's what he tells them well i think that there's there could be a tendency for for it to get watered down as you start to add these people in like he has he believes a certain purity of his message um that if you start allowing more people in you might have to round the edges just to make it a little more comfortable for them um and that sort of thing would really detract like i say from the focus the purity of what he's trying to get done at that point in his career i mean we see that now i've seen that happen like many times so it makes sense a little bit um i think also i will say this makes me again think of dr nieto and that Um, when it comes to people who are in the target class and rank, right? So in this situation, we're talking about race. You need you need empowerment, like to get to empowerment, to get recentering, to get to all of that. Sometimes you need your own space. Like you need you need affinity space. You need each other. You need to not be exposed to to the agents. Um, while you're doing your work and how we can, we all have work to do, but it doesn't, it's not all in the same room. Like the agents, you have your own path that you need to be working on. And that is like awareness and move yourself towards allyship, right? That's what you can do to help. Um, but that's your, your work. Our work is over here. And um, I think actually, I think that's extremely important and something that I believe in now. Like I wouldn't, I don't necessarily sell it the same way he's selling it. <laughs> But I do think that the work is a little bit different and that, um, yeah. I think about it in that in context as me sort of, if I'm going to be an ally to women, like there's certain things that I can do to interject and, and to add in, in a space that's helpful. But I also know there's conversations that I cannot be a part of because my mere presence 
impacts the conversation. So I just have to remove myself from that conversation. And it doesn't, it doesn't hurt me that I'm not part of that conversation. I think, I was telling this to my, my coworker last week, I think whiteness as an idea is centered in everything. And so it's hard for often for white people to feel like they can be a part of something without being centered in it at some point along the lines. And having to learn not to be centered in something, but still provide, provide an allyship that's helpful is like having to unlearn a lot of stuff that you've already learned about your perspective being important, your voice being important. It may not be the most important thing in the room. Important, okay. An important addition to that, because we're talking about the prison, right? And that's the dictionary scene. Oh, right. Yeah. Where they go through. And I remember going through the dictionary at like based off of that. Um, and the differences between how black and white are are described. And I, and I bring it up because, Tim, to your point, really the idea that, like I think a lot of white people might bring into that is you're trying to ascend to where I am, right? Mm -hmm. That's the centering, right? Yeah. That, that this is the good part, place in society. Um, even if you're coming at it from a positive, you think you're not racist, this or that. It's like, oh, they just want to be what I am. Um, they're just human. They can be what I am. Da, 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 da. But it's like, no, no, they want to be what they are and also respected or not, um, not, not held back, not oppressed for being what they are, not that they need to adapt to being more like you so that they can then have the benefits that you have. Right. Demetrius, yep. were you going to say something? No, I, I, I think it's, it's an important part of the story. Um, I know a lot of times, you know, going from the prison scene to, you know, his relationship with the nation. Um, you know, even when Ken is talking about the dictionary, code switching. Yeah. Right? Um, that's either a big part of your life or it's not a part of your life. And if it's <laughs> not a part of your life, um, the things you have to overcome to be able to relate, communicate and get things across is a huge barrier, right? And so when we talk about the movements of, okay, you know, Tim was saying, I wanna help and support a women's movement, but at some parts I can't be a part of it. Like that dynamic of what you can and can't be a part of, um, sort of what your driving piece of that is and how one message can split into 10 different messages and mm -hmm. all be perceived as the same thing when in reality, they're all like splintered off and some are good, some are bad, but it's not the core underlining purpose. I feel like that's a dynamic that it's timeless, right? Yeah. It happens today, um, depending on what part of the country you're in, um, you know, what influences your belief, what you actually have access to, right? Because we can talk about other parts of the region or country um, and think that we have a pulse based off of our inputs, but not be on the ground level to actually experience it and can completely change how everything goes. So, yeah, I know often with, with like social media and conversations where like in on Twitter, it may feel like the world believes one thing, but when you step outside of that platform, it's, it can be completely different, completely different. People who aren't even tapped, my sister's not tapping into any of that stuff. She has no idea what's happening. So her viewpoints and her, what she believes in and what she thinks is way different. It's way different because she didn't have access to any of that information. Demetrius, I, I find it interesting that you bring up code switching, which is first, I don't know, have you guys ever really thought about, like, I'm, I'm only really coming to, to grasp, like, the amount of mental energy it takes, 
like to be doing that on a regular basis. And there's some research, it's a little fuzzy in my head, so don't quote me fully on it, but on the idea that code switching is in kind um, similar to speaking multiple languages, like it's using the same parts of your brain. And I have to go and look this up to, to get more details. But the idea that then if you're bringing those people in and you are code switching because you're trying to make them more comfortable, this, that, or whatever, that it's taking a similar toll as it would be if you then bring somebody in who speaks French or something like that. It's like, okay, when I'm communicating with you, I have to put the energy into speaking another language. That part of my brain needs to be activated. That's extra energy. That, and, and also the translations. Like when we say certain things in our circles, the translate, just like any language, the translations are never exact, right? right. There's all types of phrases. And I, that's what I love about black culture, you know, that they, they create these terms that are perfect for things. The one that's more recent is, you know, feel away, right? Like mm -hmm. you could try to define what feel away means, but why bother? Because it's so perfect for, for that purpose, yeah. right? Right. And to have to, to have to try to say things in, in, in a different way, even if you are code switching on the regular in your life, it's just that extra energy, that extra friction point to really getting your point across and getting the purity of your efforts. Um, that's a diversion of energy. There's also a toll that it takes, right? Like at least when I'm in another country using a different language, I can still be me. And it's like, it's, I, I'm doing this mental work to translate, right? But I'm not also thinking that I'm not good enough or I have to be something, you know, like there's on top of that, you're also changing who you are to like your, your to fit in. Um, and like, that's, that's like very negative energy that you're also like putting on yourself on like at the same time. Ugh. Well, I think it's a, like, in my case, it would be ironic because several, definitely in the academic space, had multiple people basically comment on my blackness or quote unquote lack of it. <laughs> right. I'm like, okay, well, you don't see your, I don't say this. It was like, you don't see me in my other environments. Right. Where all of a sudden I'm surrounded by black people <laughs> who will then sometimes be like, ah, oh, you're not that black in a different way. But like, I'm definitely in that group behaving differently than I have to act when I'm in this environment so that, you don't have, you don't look at me a certain way and be, and, and then judge me on that. So it's like, Oh, am I going to be too black or am I going to be not black enough such that you're going to make comments about how you're blacker or you have different, and it's like, it's a, it's a whole thing that you just don't want to deal with sometimes. No, I mean, yeah, that representation is, is huge because you think about um, some of the barriers or gates to get to certain places in your career definitely are associated with your appearance, um, mm -hmm. the way you conduct yourself, and um, the way you communicate. Regardless of whether they should be or not, like we were talking about before we started the podcast, I've grown my hair out, right? Mm -hmm. um, I'm a larger guy. So there, there are things that I've had to do with this code switching and some of these things to make myself more palatable for other people that on my own personal time, I wouldn't care for or I wouldn't do. Right. Mm -hmm. But it's sort of like that sacrifice. What during his transition from prison to, you know, leaving, he, he did some of these things to and, and was trying to maintain 
what he was during the process. Misha, like, I, I wonder if you do the same thing. I'm literally now trying to listen to see how much bass is in my voice when I'm at work. Like, and, and I'm like, this must be a subconscious thing, but I, I think that my voice is literally higher when I'm at work. Um, <laughs> But I think also based on what you're saying, um, you know, as when he's what Detroit Red, it's like, oh, he's the he's the face of crime. Oh, he's a black guy. He must look threatening to the police. Blah blah blah. I really think that he's more. He looks more threatening to the police when he's educated in a suit and and unafraid of them, right? So he he makes this transformation and actually. It's almost like acting the way he was was a defense mechanism for a while. It was like, oh, if this is what you expect of me, you're actually not going to necessarily put government resources into surveilling me mm -hmm. <laughs> or trying to get people to assassinate me or follow me around the Middle East when I go and visit. You know what I mean? Like the level of government intervention, once he behaves in a more educated way, it, it kind of shows maybe he was quote unquote safer in a certain way when he was running the streets and, and living the stereotype. Well, yeah, because if he gets out of hand, they just throw him in prison. Yeah. Yeah. Like they have, they have their, their way of t handling that. What, what movie is it? I don't think it wasn't in this. Was it where, where I'm trying to think what movie where it's like, what is the most dangerous thing to the, to the white man? Uh, I'm, I'm going to try to find it. You find that. It I'm feels sure. like it belongs in this movie. So I, fo I found the quote, and it's, it's actually even more relevant because it's from The Wire, right? Uh, and it's Brother Muzon, who is oh. kind of the hired muscle who comes like from New York and is, well, at least coded as uh, a I'm nation of Islam, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and he says, what's the, what's the most dangerous thing, you know? black person with a library card um so i have a question so the scene where the guy gets beat up by the police and they go to malcolm for help someone says to him they allude that he he wouldn't want to help anyone who wasn't in the nation like why did they why did the neighborhood feel like that that he wasn't willing to help people who weren't with him i mean you remember when um that guy that he's i guess he's thought of as a kid i forget his name sees them show up right um yeah. at the police station and then like walk to the hospital and see like is really impressed and he wants to join them mm -hmm. and how they're not accessible um it's i think there's they are very powerful but insular um and so i think that message then goes to everybody else who is operating in this white world and um i, I think that's part of it that scene is probably one of my favorite scenes in the movie when they, you know, walk from the, the diner to the courthouse um, to see Brother Johnson, I guess is, is how they refer to him, right? Just that whole, like, I just remember as a kid thinking to myself that, you know, where he had came from, the things he had been through, and to have that kind of power and how that was received I think at an early age, that was something I hadn't seen a lot of, like that type of control, that type of power and the way he conducted himself. Um, and so like that was a really big part of the movie for me. But yeah, they said, you know, Muslims talk a good game, but what are you guys actually going to do? Right. That's what they said. You know, the sort of I guess, the people outside of the nation 
right? Because mm-hmm. they've been building, like as an organization, we see that they've been building. We see the the pews or the the chairs at the meetings starting to fill up. So they've probably been focused on organization building and saying a lot of things and have yet to to show their action. And you know, as you mentioned that scene and the way you felt, I think that may have been my first feeling of a black superhero like that that the way he marches the way he has the people there the way the cop uh says you know no man should have that much power and and this is kind of like you can look at it as the origin story of a superhero in a certain way i totally agree i've got chills like that that is a the music is probably part of it right yeah probably but the visual to me is just amazing like uh all of those people in perfect line. And even, um, and I don't know what the name of the character is, but he's, he's kind of a street kid, or I don't know if he's a street kid. He's, he's a kid in the neighborhood and he's, he's really inspired by it, right? All of those, the, the nation members standing there in perfect order, um, you know, perfect attentiveness. And he, it, it's like by just the force of being near them, it makes him want to be more like that. And you can see he straightens up. He tries to, he looks to his side like a kid would and, and wants to be more like them and later joins, you know, the organization. Um, I think it's, inc- and he he's, has no fear to walk in there and demand what he wants from a extremely hostile environment that could potentially do a lot of damage to him physically, personally. But, you know, it's, yeah like a black superhero. I mean, the music and everything like that. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I remember watching that with my par- parents over and over again. But at that particular part in the movie, I remember turning to my dad and saying, is this real? Or are they, you know, like, are they fluffing me here? Like, is this a big, you know? And he was like, no, this is, this is his space. This was the kind of power that he had, right? And so, you know, that confirmation and just the reality of how, how much more afraid they were of him with that power than when he was doing all the things in his earlier life. It's just, that dynamic is crazy. But I think this is a good point for me to, to put in that um, when I was younger and knew less about the world <laughs> or how it works, I was very much into the, the Malcolm way and I was saying something and I think I maybe kind of belittled Dr. King's approach. And my dad's from, from South Georgia, right? And he, he had to, to put me straight. He was like, he could get away with that because of the dynamics in New York, the dynamics in the North, right? Yeah. In the South, it was an entirely different thing. He would not have been able to pull that off. They're you know, outnumbered um, in hostile territory. Um, you really need to understand why uh, Martin went the way that he went. Very Bible heavy, very... Um, you know, watch what they're doing to us as opposed to this is what we're going to do. This is the way it's going to be. Right. Um, good. No, 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 no. I'm saying you're right. Like that's, I think that's often missed um, when people discuss these things, or at least the difference between the two of like the space Malcolm was in allowed for a lot of the stuff that he did versus the space Martin was in and what it didn't allow for. And how outnumbered you would have been and the, the type of confrontations you would have had. And, and you were talking about generations of fear, people who have legitimate fear. And so it's hard to get, as you're walking down the street, all these black people just join Malcolm on his march uh, as he's walking to the thing. Like, I don't know if that happens. I don't know if, if, if Martin, if he's down in the South, they get cut off or even get to the hospital. 
saying, what are you doing? I don't even know if there's a conversation. I don't even think they get to get that far. I mean, yeah. in the South, people are less connected, right? Like you've got a lot of wilderness out there and um, you're just a lot more vulnerable. They'd be picking people off before they would even have that big of a group to do yeah. that. Yeah, I, I don't know the history of the Nation of Islam, whether or not that sort of thing could have terminated and, and grown and developed in Atlanta or Birmingham or any, like, are they going to allow these militant blacks to be preaching this on the street? Um, you know, which is, you know, what got his father killed. Um, well, I mean, it's, it's a, yeah, it's a lot of different things that may, you know, say why it's not possible, but then you look at the other side of the coin here, um, Malcolm's approach and, you know, how he built his masses and, you know, how they followed him in a similar fashion. And, you know, maybe the most disappointing thing is two different people, two different philosophies, same result. Yeah. You know, fear of a smaller group that is definitely the minority having their opinion and displaying it in a way that has been said to be, this is the way to do it, the way to communicate, the way to get your point across and the way to get change and still have the same result is, is jarring. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and even, even before that, uh, was it Medgar Evans as well? Because that one, that's somebody who I actually don't have nearly as much familiarity with. And I've been meaning to, to learn more about him because um, I am not your Negro came out a few years ago and I've become very interested in, in James Baldwin and the whole, idea behind that was that he was starting on a book I think that he didn't finish before he died and it was about the lives and deaths of those three Medgar Evers, Martin Luther King, and Malcolm X and then I was like oh well if if he belongs in this triumvirate for this person who I respect so much this is somebody I need to learn more about so I'm just gonna find a book or something like that but you know was he he was in the the, the nonviolence um, why am I losing the name? Do either of you guys be able to help me out? Okay. Sorry. Here, Sorry. I can, I'll pull my phone up. Do the Googles. <laughs> like, this is something I feel like, that's the other thing. I feel like I should know so much. There's, there's like so much to know. There's a lot to learn. But there's uh, a reason that you didn't learn about that, right? Like they don't teach you that in school. That's not fair. Yeah. No, I mean, and, and you know, to that point, um, I, I can remember very specifically my mom using this movie as a tool. Um, you know, I would get in trouble and there'd be, you know, I'd be getting disciplined. And she would use some of these speeches from this movie, um, you know, Malcolm X, and sort of walk me through where I went wrong you know, related to different things. And at the time I was just like, you know, my mom is over the top, she's extreme, you know, but these tools were important, you know, these life parallels and, you know, the paths you can go down with some of these decisions. And, you know, that form of discipline allowed me to, oh, well, you know, maybe I should find out more about these type of things, you know, and how it has an impact on my life and drawing that parallel that maybe if this movie and others like it hadn't have been made, she would have just had to use her voice with no backup or support. Yeah. Okay, um, so, so um, I'm on Medgar Evers' Wikipedia page and 
the only things I'm seeing are NAACP and then this Regional Council of Negro Leadership. I'm not seeing anything about nonviolent something. I'll, I'll try to figure out what that okay. one is. If it was just the NAACP, then I, I know about that one. <laughs> you know about it's that like one? It's like the nonviolent, uh, I'll, I'll figure it out. I'll figure it out. Um, I do think that so, this movie is helpful as a teaching tool, right? Like you could, more. yeah. What were you gonna say, Tim? I was gonna say, so towards the end of the film, he takes his Hajj to Mecca. And it's really fascinating when it's juxtaposed with everything else that he's seen and learned, right? He's with, as he says, blue-eyed, blonde-haired, pale-skinned people that are also Muslim. And, um, and it reminds me so much of like what we've seen on some of these news outlets about the rise in like Islam and that they want to take over the world. I'm like, when I was in Vietnam, I saw a bunch of temples, Buddhist temples, and I also saw a bunch of mosques. Like, they're every Muslims are everywhere. And this idea that like that um, what we've seen over the years, the last few years, with the news media outlets, just pinning the idea of Muslims as being just angry brown people who believe in Allah and believe in like what do they say? What do they call it? Uh, jihad and like. Um, Sharia law and all that other stuff, right? Not that it's a, 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 a religion that encompasses so many different types of people. And I think during the scene where he's in Mecca, you see it. You see all of the things that we've talked about. And here we are decades later, and it's still a conversation about who's part of this religion, despite what we see every day. Well, I think to your point too, um, I think a lot of people wouldn't know, but our intervention during the Clinton administration in Yugoslavia when it was falling apart. Um, mm -hmm. I think the Bosniaks, I want to say, are Muslims from that area, from um, the Balkans area, who were on the other side from Christians like um, Slobodan Milosevic, who were being massacred, right? Mm -hmm. And so these are, these are, you know, people from part of Europe that we've visited where it's blonde, it's tall, blonde people, and that sort of thing, um, who are Muslim. So that's just an example of where uh, that whole diversity of the of the religion comes from, right? It's, it's I think the second largest religion in the world. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I've and born. it spreads all the way from Asia um, all the way to to Europe like that. So. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um. So and it worked like the this? organization was the students non the student nonviolent nonviolence coordinating committee is the one. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious if you guys know, I don't know, um, what was the nation's like reaction to this movie? Did they support it? Did they like it? Did, do we know what they think of it? Cause they're kind of painted as like, you do get some of the teachings, but they're also painted as the bad guys kind of, right? Well, they would have swapped leadership to, um, Farrakhan by now mm -hmm. so maybe they were going to be a little okay with I, I don't know the answer is no no <laughs> there's no so recently there was a who killed Malcolm X documentary that came out mm -hmm. so these sort of uh, talking heads of the nation pop up in various news outlets right you know especially black outlets having this discussion and they appreciate the teachings being public but also frame, they feel like they're being framed as villains and it's the FBI and it's the white man's doing. 
and he's trying to poison because he knows we're the true kings and wants to sow division. It's all of that language that pops up. We briefly talked about this, but we saw it with Nick Cannon. But that was the whole Nick Cannon fiasco, which is he brings in a guy who's part of the nation and he starts spewing some of these same nation talking points that are anti-Semitic and under the guise of like, we're the true kings, so it can't be anti-Semitic. Um, so that's what we saw even during the time, which was like, yeah, we like this movie, but we didn't really, you know, that's the white man, you know. Because you, you can, when you, if you've ever talked to these type of dudes, not necessarily the nation, but like these people, they, if they believe in high level conspiracies, you can always pivot to that, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, you know, you know how people over in Warner's, they want the truth out, so they may spike edit it, or, the, you know, they're, they're forcing some. And it's all that conversation. I think it's funny because, like, remember, do the right thing. We did that recently. That was three years earlier, and they were mm-hmm. his security for making that movie. So I think it's funny that, like, you've got the nation's paramilitary mm-hmm. on set as the security for one movie, and then three years later doing this. Sorry, Demetrius, what were you going to say? Oh no, I just I was going to say that's a like that that's an interesting dynamic to me. Just. Yeah. How easy it is um, with politics and propaganda and, um, you know, who's telling the story for something to come out a certain way. And, you know, the truth and what comes out first can be wildly different. (laughs) That interpretation is just, it's mind blowing to me. Like, Like the fact that both Malcolm X Martin Luther King were under such heavy surveillance Mm -hmm. and these things were just allowed to play out or you know I mean yeah I can't let it go unnoticed that look you weren't he he wasn't under surveillance because he was this person that you liked a lot all right so regardless (laughs) of what he was doing that in the background and what you can do with all that information and sort of sway the public it just, it leaves like a really dirty taste in your mouth. Cause it's like, you know, done the right way, done the wrong way, power that isn't controlled um, at any point in time, being able to just, this is how we're going to make it crumble and disappear. I mean, it's what is the, what is, what is the image that's put out for the Black Panthers? It's, it's not feeding, feeding uh, poor children or any no. sort of education or any sort of that. It's just a scary black men with guns which right. I think ties into an earlier point that I made when, when Malcolm was, was more the stereotype, right? Because what did they do to take, take out the Black Panthers? They just sent the police in to shoot them, right? Mm-hmm. Because they, were, they looked more like who you can go in and, and do that with, right? They weren't going to send the... I don't think they would have sent the police in to just shoot the, black, uh, the um, Nation of Islam. They needed to do that in a more... Because they looked so respectable in a certain way, or, or Martin Luther King, you need to, to be a little more insidious to take that sort of thing down. And once you've proved that that's not, you know, there's a lot of, this works with all types of opposition groups, or, or um, I was listening to a similar one about uh, basically the terrorist groups that are out now. You take out certain leadership and you might cultivate different leadership that comes up that has less of a politically savvy um, ideology and then you can take them out more violently you know what i mean so so then you're you're able to use more naked force against like the black panthers or something after you've kind of proved well this way didn't really work 
So now the, the people are trying to resort to a tougher, and then you can just use the, the easier, the tough force. Well, and like for Malcolm, I, I mean, I don't know, obviously I wasn't there. I don't really know what happened, but like Demetrius is saying, they, he was under surveillance. They knew what was going on. They could have intervened. My guess, I mean, I am, there's no doubt in my mind that they knew that assassination was coming and that they, if they wanted to, <laughs> they could have stopped it. Um, and they didn't. And so um, I think they probably helped helped it along. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So like yeah. they they were you know even if they weren't the ones who actually physically did it, um, they this this was that yeah, this this is the result that they chose. Um, and I it, it I I think it's a good um, reminder that that movie is coming out um, with Daniel Kaluuya. Uh, what is it called? Um, Judas. Yeah, yeah, by Hugh P. Newton. Yeah, so that, because that's NAACP, or not, sorry, that's Black Panthers, right? So right. that'll be an interesting, um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to watch that, because you're right, like, they came in and just shot him, I mean. And then covered it up, truth yeah. comes out later, and they were like, we're just going to forget, like, we just let that go, right? Lied about it, special coalition, all that kind of stuff. We're over that now, guys, like, look. <laughs> we don't do that anymore. Nothing is how many here. <laughs> How many people do we know who've been killed in their beds in the last four years? You know, do you guys remember Panther from like '95? Do. Yeah, I remember seeing that one when I was a kid as well. Like after having seen, I don't think I understood that one nearly as much as as I did this movie. But is that is it good? Do you recommend it? I don't. That's, I, I'm not really sure. Was it good? I, I haven't remember. seen it in a while. Yeah, I've seen it. I don't remember any of that movie. So there it is something, right? This movie, man, um, there have been other movies that have tried to tell stories similar, maybe, I mean, Malcolm's story, other stories. Um, but this one, I've said it earlier, does not age. And I think that is partially the brilliance of Spike. I also think that's Denzel. Um, like, I, he, over Denzel. I don't know. Let's look that up. Like, oh. Someone won the Oscar over Denzel that year, and I, I don't know. I don't remember who it was. I was going to say, Driving Miss Daisy won over this, right? Do the right thing. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> Which is funny because like, Green Book just won, right? Was it yeah. Green Book? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's so, like, so frustrating. I mean, <laughs> you know, <laughs> the type of movies that you can win awards for. Like, that's why, you know, unfortunately, I don't watch award shows. I just, like, well, I, I, I mean, I mean, my, my perspective is just different. Like, I, I know that, like, I don't really listen to, um, you know, critics, movie critics. Wow. I don't listen to those. I love watching a movie without seeing the trailer because I just have this thing about thinking that I can they show the ending in the trailer. They do a lot of stuff. And if you watch enough movies, you can kind of figure stuff out that you might not want to know going in. Um, so I, I do a lot of that kind of stuff, but I feel like I just need to form my own opinion. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, if I, I'm trying to see, I don't know if this is the right year or not, but um, Anthony Hopkins won and for Silence of the Lambs in 92. And um, that's who? It would have been 93, right? Okay, hold on. 
So the end of this movie um, is kind of why you're looking this up. It's kind of crazy the way it's sort of edited together with these guys getting their guns together, with people on their way to on the way to the churches. Uh, they're on the way to to see Malcolm speak. He has that sort of weird, very tense interaction with his people in the dressing room. Um, everything feels a little bit off uh, that day before he gets shot. So the uh, best actor in 93 went to Al Pacino for Scent of a Woman. Mm. And best picture went to Unforgiven, a Western by good old uh, Clint Eastwood. Ah, yeah. So you can see where we were in 90, in 92, 93, huh? I think it's really interesting. So when I, when you Google this, you've got like a list of the winners and you've got their pictures and it's like another one of those like, man, Oscar's so white, like. This is 92 and 93 that I had seen, but like, damn. Been that way for a while. Um, okay. What else do you, is there anything else you guys want to talk about? We, uh, um, uh, we haven't specifically talked about influences. Um, we can. Has, actually, I, I want to know. Was this movie influential for any of you in ways you haven't already mentioned? Yeah, for me it was. I mean, I was teenager at the time um just my parents were really big on my identity as a black man this was something they pointed to like a height of like gangster rap music gang violence and this was very much a different look at like what it meant to be a black man publicly and it ended up and it allowed for them to teach from that perspective um and not necessarily feel like i was being preached at like here's this movie we like like Spike Lee, we like Denzel, and they're telling a story that you're not learning in school, and here's some other things you might want to know. So it was very influential for me personally, just to sort of broaden my knowledge about what was happening in the world before I was born versus what I was learning in school. I think I had yeah, similar sort of situation. I think in retrospect, it uh, says a lot which rated R movies my parents were allowing me to see, because <laughs> it sure. was like this, uh, because I didn't think of them as, as they didn't really talk that much about black stuff in that way. It was just like, you know, you're, you might be viewed this way. Make sure that you're always um, better uh, or at the top so that, you know, cause you might not get uh, the benefit of the doubt, that sort of thing. Um, but, they had, but on the other hand, they had me watch this. I saw Panther. I saw Rosewood. Like it was these sort of movies that they were like pouring into my other ear. <laughs> well, so. I have a fun Rosewood story. Yeah. So Rosewood was playing at the theater when I watched it, and I had already seen it, and I loved it. I thought it was great. So I'm in there, and I see this brother's coming in. He's got this white girl with him. And he was like, hey, we're here to see Rosewood. And I was like, hey, man, you might not want to – y'all might not want to see this movie on a date night, bro. 100% true story. I tell him, like, bro, you might not want to do that. He was like, no, nah, man, I heard it was good. I was like, it's good, but, like, fam. Might not want to do this. So the movie comes out, and dude is like, if you've seen Rosewood, he's like hype. <laughs> yeah, 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 brother, you was right. I should, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, dap me up all hard and was like, yeah, you was right. You was right. I shouldn't have took her to this movie. I was like, yeah, man, you shouldn't have. <laughs> that's, that's an awkward <laughs> ride home. That's an awkward <laughs> ride home, bro. Oh, man, it's so awkward. But Rosewood, again, another true story that we don't, we, we never taught about that. I, there's no reason we shouldn't have learned about that. Like my nephew was in a civics thing this summer 
put together um, by Chris, who was on our Scarface episode, his, his summer program. And they had a whole civics discuss portion of their program. And they learned about those type of things. They talked about Tulsa, Oklahoma, and they had a full-on discussion about it. Um, so I like that this stuff is coming up now for kids to learn at his age. And he's, you know, entering high school. He's learning these, these stories. Shout out to Watchmen. Like, I think um, the the series now, we we haven't watched the whole thing. Um, yeah. But I think the fact that they have that happening in the, I mean, very beginning of this series has brought it much more uh, center, like, awareness. Well, I, I think that has helped. I knew nothing. I don't think I knew anything about the block Wall Street, the Tulsa, um, until my 20s, at least until I was into college. But Rosewood was my version of, of, of learning about that sort of, of thing. Yeah. Even, even, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, sorry, Tim. Uh, no, I was going to say, uh, yeah, this was a, a a very important movie of my childhood. And I think also another interesting piece is I got to see some of these things in these movies and, you know, ask my parents, is this, is this real? Is this, you know, tell me about how this happened. What was your perspective? And I'm living in the Northwest Washington, right? So I move in 93 to uh, Paris, Texas, right? 90 miles northeast of Dallas. Um, wow. And before that time, most of these things that I was watching, I didn't have to have direct interactions and, you know, have to develop through. But the moment I moved across the country, um, these stopped being things that I was like, um, is this real? Is that, you know, a thing? It started being things that I was experiencing. And, you know, it was sort of like a, a development or, or a preview of things that I was going to actually come in inter interaction with. And I think that completely changed the course of, you know, how I developed and viewed, um, you know, situations, how to react to them, you know, what was real, what was fake, and what yeah. I, I had one year in, in Dallas, Texas, actually Plano, Texas, that was, was a similar eye-opening experience. And I got back, right back out of there, back up to Kent. I was like, this place is wild. It was two, it was two years in Vancouver, Washington, and I had moved from Sacramento, California. And I not only did I move to Sacramento, where it was super racially diverse in my community, I was at a performing arts school that was super diverse. And every experience with someone who wasn't Black was extremely positive. All the white people I came in contact with were music, hippie type of people, you know what I'm saying? So when I get to Vancouver, the very first day I'm in Vancouver, everyone's store staring at us. And I told my dad, I was like, like what's going on? And he was like, eh, guess we got to have the talk. So... It was a very similar experience where these things that I saw on television and these things that I had read about, although I knew they were real, even conversations with my great grandmother who talked about her work during Black Panther movement or my uncle, my great uncle Dick, all this stuff, it all felt distant. I knew it was true, but it felt distant. But when I get yep. to Vancouver, like having to work through it in real time was like, wait, wait, wait a minute, this stuff is still yeah. happening and then I have to work through all of this it was and we're doing the thing I try to stress to, to many of my white friends is like, this has happened to us as kids. We're children having to deal with it. I was a child. I was telling my sister this the other day, and we kind of got emotional talking about it. like we were 13, 14, having to put together Martin Luther King Day Assembly because our school didn't acknowledge it. We were children speaking to adults about the need for MLK Assembly and how 
we could we could all benefit from it and having to go to and like I was a kid having to talk to an adult and having to advocate for myself well, for racial equality like that's crazy to me that we're doing this as children in the Kent so being in the Kent school district a Martin Luther King Day was portrayed to me as a uh, it's it's like the Jesus metaphor he came he died for us and now the world is good right like, yeah. so I constantly, constantly, every year of my life feel further and further betrayed because I was under the impression that things were like, things were getting good. Everything's going upwards. And the more I learned about the world, I'm like, you guys, you lied to me. <laughs> like, you lied. Yeah. Um, and so our, my thing is like, there was me and one other uh, black girl in the whole grade, right? And like second grade or something, we had MLK day and the teacher was like, pulled the both of us up to the front of the, the front of the classroom and said, um, so thanks to Martin Luther King, we get to have Kendon and Jennifer in our class. Isn't that nice? And we're both like, like, I was just, <laughs> and so I was asked uh, by a friend of ours to do the MLK, uh, to be a speaker at the MLK at Benson Elementary, like a year ago. And I, I said that I told that story to the kids and they were like, they were like, even the adults I could see in the back of the room were like, oh, <laughs> they did what? And I was like, yeah. And those kids didn't like, didn't have the same experience. And I was like, I was the only, I was basically me and one other black kid in the whole class, you know? Yeah. And he's like being pulled up to, to be displayed almost, you know, it's no, something God, I, that I, you deal with very early going, going forward. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, so it's, like, it's like an auction block. Look, yeah. Look, Odd. It was very odd. It, it, it stuck with me. Not, not everything from second grade sticks with you. I didn't remember it as a negative experience when I was a kid. I was just like, why do you have me standing up here? Like, you didn't have to have me standing up at the front of the room to say this, right? No, no yeah. That's like, <laughs> the crazy thing is, I, I was telling my wife the other, like, maybe just within the last few months about being in the second grade and how, like, they had this rotation of the different people they talk about, right? You know, whether it's Rosa Parks, whether it's MLK, and they're going through all this stuff. And I am the only black kid in the class. And two days, for two days after we talked about this, my classmates were apologizing to me at recess. <laughs> and, like just, you know, like, like the capacity to be able to handle, oh, well, first of all, I wasn't even prepared for this conversation. And please stop, please stop apologizing. Like having kids of the same age, apologize to you for something that you're kind of learning with them through the eyes of someone else. And mm -hmm. I just didn't have the capacity to um, accept that, how to react to it, like all that kind of stuff. It was like a thing at home was like, okay, well, we have to deal with this. We didn't know it was going to be that day at school, but now it's like, <laughs> right. So, so you, you know, the word, you know, the word vigorous. Yeah. Right. I remember on the playground one time, I think I was reading a book or something. And the, so I was like, uh, and I think I asked another kid or a couple of kids around. I was like, do you know what the word vigor means? They're like, you should know what that means. <laughs> and I was like, what do you talk? I was like, oh, you thought I said something else. Like, I think my parents or somebody had to explain. And I was like, why would I know? Like, why would I supposed to know what this word means? It's the first time I've seen this word in this book. It's like little things like that, 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 that build up in your mind over time. And you're like, oh, that's, well, that's why you assume I should know. Why do you know this word? Like, what are your parents talking about at home? So, um, I've had very similar 
experiences that you guys are talking about from like an observing, like an observation point, right? Like watch this movie pretty young, but not, not super young. Um, Higher Learning was probably the first movie I saw that, that I was old enough to be like the fuck and like getting really upset. Um, But in Hawaii, like everybody's brown. There's some white people, but everybody else is brown. Um, and so it, this, these were like kind of like what you were talking about, Demetrius. Like these were theoretical things to me and historical things to me, but not current. Um, and so it was moving up to Tacoma that I experienced all this, where I'm just like, oh. And I picked a very diverse high school to go to. Um, like that's one of the, re- that's why I picked that school is I had looked at the demographics of the high schools in Tacoma and was like, well, this is the most diverse. I'm going to go here. Um, and what was crazy was seeing things within my school, but then also going outside of my school. So it was sports and going to other schools like in the peninsula um, and going there and and seeing how they were treating us and things that they were yelling at us and being like, what is this? Like, what is going on? This is, this is crazy. And this is now <laughs> like right. it's, it's a, that's interesting because there's a, a there's this difference between if you're like the only one or just one of a couple opposed to when there's a bunch of you I guess because like my school was even high school was pretty much all or was very very mostly white so no school was going to be yelling anything at us as a group yeah no I could think of <laughs> yeah that, that even going down to Auburn like like <laughs> I feel I feel way going to Auburn now right I was perfectly comfortable to go to Auburn as a, as a, in high school and um, I don't know, like, if I was just in a bubble or something, I don't know. Demetrius, you went to, to, to nearby high school. Do you remember yeah, anything no, like that? So I, I, I moved, when I moved back from Texas, I was 16. And so the first time I got called the N-word, I was in Texas, right? 12 years old. Just, like I said, side A, side B, right? So I came back from Texas. I went to Kent Meridian. And um, the experience coming in, to that school, I think I was better prepared for anything. But yeah, there were still some some schools that we played where um, I remember we beat a school, and they there was a lot of tension. I think they had one person of color on their team. Um, we beat them for homecoming, and our coaches said, "We're not going down into the basement dressing room. Get your stuff. We're getting on the bus and we're going home. You can shower when we get home." So there was some dynamics that existed not nearly as upfront in your face in certain areas as others but yeah um okay i don't think i've told this story to you guys before uh so again going back to hawaii like mostly mostly brown people some white people um the, the way they tried to teach us about segregation um was they said basically anybody who had brown skin and brown eyes would have been treated this way and they did a reverse racism day where everybody who had blonde hair or blue eyes uh, had to be treated like they had to go last in line and they um, like they just like they switched it up and like put them in the back yeah put them back in line didn't call on them um, like treated them really bad for a day and these are like this is elementary school like you shouldn't be treating kids this way and my best friend so i'm half Samoan, half white my best friend is half tongan half white but her hair is lighter than mine like she's got some like sun kind of golden golden to it so they made her they made her be in the um the white category or the 
I guess the black category for the day. So like they were separating us and like being all mean and I'm like crying, like, why are you doing this to Latea? This is like the worst thing ever. Anyway. Well, that's interesting. I think schools need to be careful about these The whole idea of reverse racism, I wonder how many different kids had an experience like that. And because th there's a lot of people, white people who are terrified and believe this is a real thing that's going to happen. Reverse racism when, when they lose privilege or whatever. Um, and it, it, I have to remind myself that mostly teachers don't always know what they're doing either. Like a lot of the teachers are, are younger than us. So they're trying to figure these things out. But what's interesting about what you just said is I've been reading this book on the history of South Africa. And when they implemented apartheid and they had like four or five, six different types of races, and they had to go in and start doing this, right? Decide like, what are the, the different criteria for what makes you belong in one of these groups? One of them was like, if we put a, a comb in your hair and let go, does it fall to the ground? Stuff like that. And, and students who would be considered white, but for whatever reason, the, the state agency decided they weren't, all of a sudden they, they're crying, like what Shalee's talking about, pulling them out of class. No, you belong over here with the coloreds, or turns out you're actually black, or some people they quote they use the term, quote unquote, ascended to one of the the more desirable positions. Like, oh, you're not actually Indian, you're actually white. Like all of this sort of nonsense of, of trying to 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 cut to break people up over a bunch of of unrelated characteristics. Can you remind uh, us? Give us a year time frame. When when was this happening? I want to say the fifties. Okay. So apartheid lasted a really long time there. Like 40 years, yeah. I think. Crazy. Okay. So yes, this movie is influential. Um, what is your, if, to the extent you haven't said it already, or you can just name a couple things, what is your favorite thing about this movie? Oh, Denzel. Easy. Yeah. No. I think that's, yeah. I mean, the all of the clever um, filmmaking tricks that we talked about as well, like when he's speaking the words of Elijah Muhammad, just all of these different things to really get you into understanding. They're just really powerful. Um, I guess the last thing I would say is I did mention watching this multiple times throughout my life and it feels different every time. This is the first time and movies don't usually make me cry, but there was at least two times that made me cry in this movie. And one of them was, I was unexpected is when he sees West Indian Archie again. Yeah. And the way that he, he doesn't hate him. He doesn't, you know, and the guy's broken. He, he was king in his own little realm, but the world still broke him down and the kindness that Martin, uh, that Malcolm shows him. And that, that had a different impact than it did when I was in the in my twenties or earlier. And then again, when, when Betty Shabazz is holding her husband and just like, they killed him, like, like that was really, really tough for me, both of those scenes. Um, and uh, so th that's another thing is, that's my favorite thing about this movie is it grows with me, right? It, it's, it's showing me something different in every phase of my life. Yeah, I, I, I definitely say um, just, uh, you know, Spike Lee and his ability to just be unapologetic um i you know love everything about the movie he he came to my college um and he spoke to us for uh dad's weekend that's and awesome it was like the biggest thing i was like i was like this is this is a big deal right and um you know just his ability to not cut corners and tell the truth and push through like we i think we talked earlier about 
um, some of the difficulties ha he had making this movie because it was mm -hmm. so long and the funding issues and things like that. Like a lesser person would have probably taken a smaller budget, cut out half of the things that were important to us and made something that fit into a small box mm -hmm. and, and just shipped it out. But, you know, pull out all the pauses, make it the right way and, and get it done. So. And he, he teaches us along, right? Like there are movies where you're just an observer watching someone's life, but this is, it's us also learning along with Malcolm, right? Like in the prison scene, go into that definite, like I, I forgot about the dictionary part. That is like, it's amazing. You're hearing these things and you're learning it too, which I think is really cool. Um, my favorite thing, the only thing that we haven't talked about, I really thought it was funny when the surveillance guys were comparing that him and Malcolm, like, or Malcolm yeah. X and Martin Luther King, like, and like what they were getting up to on their tapes. Cause it was like a moment where he was like talking to his wife. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but the other piece is the end um, and how he, we do this. It were, I, I broke it, right? Like he dies, we see that. And then it goes to now. And you've got everybody standing up and being like, I am Malcolm X. I am Malcolm X. And like, he does that really well of ending his movies in like a very powerful way to be like, okay, now I've just showed you this. And, and now here I'm passing this to you. How is it going to impact you? How are you going to identify with it? And I, I, I just, I think it was a brilliant way to end that movie. And I, very unexpected. Like, I don't know that everyone would have considered doing something like that. Well, it's like the wake up from yeah. um, school days, mm -hmm. for instance. Yeah, it does. And normally that, that, that would be kind of cringy to me, does the standing mm -hmm. up thing. But yeah. I'm like, I see, I see what you, and then it ends actually with Nelson Mandela yeah. speaking. Yeah. Mandela speaking. Yeah. It's powerful. Mm -hmm. Tim, any other favorite things? I mean, you said Denzel. Oh, oh go ahead. Actually, there's a uh, who's speaking. There's like a voiceover when they say when he tells when they say that he was about hey like did you ever stand with him did you ever see him smile did you ever who is is that from his eulogy does anybody know I don't know what that's from that is extremely powerful to me that's where I, like don't don't believe what the what the what the propaganda is going to be about he was a human man with warmth. Um, who who stood for something and was was able to change like the the whole wording of that is perfect yeah i i can't remember who who was the narrator but just a very powerful voice i mean i um, bet you it was morgan freeman no i would have i would have remembered that i don't know who it was but i mean at that i feel like the person saying it could have had a huge impact but it just seemed like such a powerful full voice that was saying it. I'll have to look up who, who actually narrated that piece, but yeah, mm -hmm. it's a big deal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, it's also crazy to me. Uh, well, and they splice in pictures of him and uh, I mean, Denzel, I would not say they look alike, but they really look alike. Like they just did us. He, he did such a good job. Um, and I like that. Cause like while they're saying that piece, I think they're showing pictures of him smiling um yeah that's so good okay time to rate it all right is this movie a classic or are we past it oh it's definitely a classic 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 yeah 
absolute classic. Absolute classic. Oh man, this movie is good. Thank you guys for letting us do it. Demetrius, thank you. Thank you for coming back. I'm glad you were here for this. Thanks for um, coming on. It's always a pleasure. So what are we going to do next week? Do we know? <laughs> I wanted to make a pinky in the brain joke. <laughs> the same thing we always do. <laughs> so we'll find out next week when, Kendon, what will we be? We'll be back. Okay, here we go. Here at this final hour, in this quiet place, Harlem has come to bid farewell to one of its brightest hopes, extinguished now and gone from us forever. For Harlem is where he worked and where he struggled and fought, his home of homes where his heart was and where his people are. And it is therefore most fitting that we meet once again in Harlem to share these last moments with him. For Harlem has ever been gracious to those who loved her, have fought for her, and have defended her honor even to death. It is not in the memory of man that this beleaguered, unfortunate, but nonetheless proud community has found a braver, more gallant young champion than this Afro-American who lies before us unconquered still. Many will ask what Harlem finds to honor in this stormy, controversial, and bold young captain, and we will smile, and we will answer and say unto them, Did you ever talk to Brother Malcolm? Did you ever have him smile at you? Did you ever listen to him? Did he ever really do a mean thing? Was he ever associated with violence or any public disturbance? For if you did... You would know him, and if you knew him, you would know why we must honor him. Malcolm was our manhood, our living black manhood. That was his meaning to his people, and in honoring him, we honor the best in ourselves. And we will know him then for what he was, and is, a prince, a black shining prince who didn't hesitate to die because he loved us so.